The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the host and its guests and do not necessarily reflect the position of the companies. Examples of analysis discussed within this podcast are examples only based on limited and dated open source information and should not be utilised in real life as the only solution available. Assumptions made within this analysis are not reflective of the position of the companies. No part of this podcast may be reproduced, stored or transmitted in any form or by any means, mechanical, electronic or otherwise, without prior written permission from James McPherson. What's up peeps, welcome back to Rebranding Safety. Let's jump into the intro and we'll tell you about all about today's guest. The problem in safety isn't deviation, it's complexity. Health and safety has gone mad. Health and safety is trying to unpick having gone mad in the past. There's no one solution or one problem. The problem is that we are looking for one solution. Does the structure of the team allow them to flourish? Feel safe enough to be uncomfortable. The environment defines our behaviours. People aren't the problem, they're the solution. Rebranding safety, crushing the stereotype. Brought to you by Risk What's up peeps, welcome back to Rebranding Safety. Rebranding Safety is a YouTube channel and podcast doing exactly what it says on the tin really to change the perception of health and safety and in this mini series safety one and safety two we're here to kind of cut down some of that those trees so we can start to see the wood you see what I did there with that saying can't see the wood for the trees um, we're dominated in this space around these arguing and debating around safety one and safety two these academics are bickering with each other and then us operational people us doers us practical people are now getting drawn into that and, and that's why i chose to do this mini series to try and work out what the hell is going on and one of the most reasonable people i think i've spoke to so far in this conversation who i speak to quite a lot now and i actually interviewed this today's guest a very very long time ago and I've held it back because I knew I wanted to do this series and that is today's guest who's Adam Johns who's done this he's implemented it and if you go and listen to his keynotes he talks a lot about how you do it um, and you start to realize how simple this stuff is but actually um, the kind of impact you can have around it so hopefully you'll find today's uh, conversation with Adam very interesting um, make sure you listen to next week where I reflect on it but I really like the way that Adam comes across. Adam is a very reasonable person, as are most of the people he spoke to, really. You know, everyone on that safety two side so far, don't get me wrong, not everyone is like this, but, you know, most people are very much, we stand on the shoulder of giants kind of, kind of uh, quote, which I think Adam says even in this conversation today, and I think Kevin might have said last week, um, and to be fair, most of us practical people are a bit like that. I think I feel like most of the arguments from the academic space. But anyway, that's for me to reflect on next week. Let's jump into the conversation with Adam and you can hear more about how to implement safety too in your workplace. Let's go. Uh, so I'm British, um, recently returned from Hong Kong, um, where I was living for four years. Um, but if I sort of take you back to sort of the start of me, although I won't sort of go all the way back, but... Essentially, I spent my entire childhood wanting to be a pilot, commercial pilot. Um, that was my kind of uh, big, big idea, you know, big dream to be a commercial pilot. And so sort of took that all the way through school, went to university, did an aviation degree, which was all about, you know, getting towards that, that commercial pilot um, type of career. But when I was in uni in my third year, I did a, a dissertation that was around safety. So it was specifically about how pilots react to emergencies, interaction between them and the automation. And that kind of led me to think a little bit differently about what I wanted to do with my career. Um, and at around the same time, it was the global financial crash. 
So becoming a commercial pilot didn't seem like a great idea at the time. So I got offered a job working for a company in the aviation sector that provided um, flight data management solutions to airlines. So I took the job. One of the main reasons was that I wanted my what I did in my career to have kind of like a bit, bit more of a strategic impact rather than um, just sort of flying a plane day by day. I wanted to sort of have a bigger bigger idea as to what I was trying to achieve. So um, I took that job and that then led me on to working at Virgin Atlantic. So I was there for a couple of years working on um, safety analysis, so taking all of the different data sources they had around safety and analyzing that and producing intelligence from it. And that then took me to the Civil Aviation Authority, which is the UK regulator, civil aviation. Um, and it was there where I kind of started to see things a little bit differently or sort of get, get introduced to new ideas. Um, the main thing I was working on there was actually introducing um, performance-based regulation and performance-based oversight into the UK industry via the, via the inspectors and surveyors that we had. So it was about coming up with um, tools and processes for how we can monitor um, performance beyond compliance within the industry, but also putting together a safety management system for the regulator, which was quite a unique, uh, unique kind of program at the time. Mm-hmm. It was then about three years after being at the CAA that I uh, I saw a, an opportunity at Cathay Pacific in Hong Kong. Cathay Pacific being the sort of the major airline out there, um, working back into the industry, and then then I took the role there. So um, I was there for about four and a half years. Um, started off in a very kind of broad safety management role that also incorporated the occupational health and safety side of things as well because up until this point my career had all been about flight safety um, so it was kind of both flight and and people safety and then towards the end of that time um, for sort of the last two years I've been working a lot on the implementation of ideas around safety tour and resilience awesome now you're back over to, to sunny Sonny Brummy, Birmingham, you're, you're in now, aren't you? Is that right? I'm c- currently in Birmingham, yeah, quarantining just like uh, everybody else. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think what, what the, what's kind of a, a, attractive about you, Adam, okay, is, is your hair <laughs> and, uh, and the beard. <laughs> so what, what kind of... Careful. A, a, <laughs> what kind of... Um, what, what I what I liked about one is how you talk about um, safety two and safety different or whatever we want to call it. Let's let's call it safety two for the sake of this podcast. Um, yeah. One, you know, I really like the way you talk about. It. I listened to that that presentation you did on, I did on Ron Gant's call, and um, and that was quite nice. But the other thing is, I think that there's always that argument from that safety one campus to as that this stuff doesn't actually work and and i think yourself mm. and probably a couple of others that i've come across i hope you will get on the podcast in the future as well um have done it you know been there done that got a t-shirt and it'd just be interested to talk about interesting to talk about your journey what you did what you found difficult and you know if you did have those kind of tangible results towards the end i think it'll be be mm-hmm. interesting yeah um, so let, let's let's probably just go with some some basics first all right yeah so what is what is the difference between that safety one and safety two in, in your opinion that kind of uh, that kind of introduction i suppose in into safety two do you know what i mean yeah yeah so i mean my my personal position on what safety one and safety two means or safety differently has evolved over time. And I think that will happen for everybody. I think everybody that 
first engages with the, these ideas will initially maybe base their view purely on what they read and then as they interact with these ideas in, the, in their own life in their own career then they'll start to kind of adjust their, their own wisdom around it essentially so for me um safety two really is a is what you might call a generative image firstly by generative image i mean something that it's almost like a label that enables us to think that there might be something different we can do and it's the same with safety differently and actually it's kind of the same with behavior-based safety as well yes it could be a program in, of, of sorts but actually it's a generative image that enables a group of people to say well actually there is a different way of thinking there's a different way of doing um, and actually this this whole concept originates around the late 80s with the introduction of the term sustainable development which brought together businesses and environmentalists who initially were kind of like at loggerheads and then this whole, whole idea of sustainable development brought them together well actually we, we can we can sort of achieve common goals so for me safety two kind of adopts that same kind of uh, definition of being a generative image for me in terms of the difference between safety one and safety two as views of the world the first thing is that is safety two represents for me a fundamentally different way of seeing the world so in a safety one world you're seeing people as hazardous and you're seeing safety the management of safety purely about avoiding negatives in safety two you're seeing people as crucial for the success of systems and you're seeing safety as the presence of those capacities. So for me, there's a fundamental paradigm shift needed between safety one and safety two. The second aspect is around scope. For me, the scope of safety two includes everything we already look at in what you would call safety one, but it goes broader. So we don't throw out the hazards and the risks and the risk assessments. What we do is we ex expand what we look at, but we apply a different paradigm to the way we look at it. So for instance, when we're, for instance, maybe we're doing a risk assessment around a change to a particular piece of work, rather than just saying, well, what are the hazards? What are the risks? What are the controls, et cetera? We look more broadly and, and try and get a better understanding of how that work actually gets done in reality by talking to the people that do it. And by using that knowledge of what, how the work is normally successful, we then use that to inform our risk assessment as opposed to just looking for hazards and risks. Mm. So, so for me, that represents the sort of the big difference. Um, just to sort of touch on safety differently a little as well. I don't personally use the term safety differently because okay. I don't see that as being as kind of comprehensive a theory as safety too. I see there being a lot of overlaps, a lot of relationships between what they're trying to say, but safety differently to me is more of a unification of a wide range of principles, but safety too is more of a theory grounded in science. And then safety too then leads us on to looking at resilience and the science of resilience engineering. Hmm. That's interesting because I think I'm Eric's, uh, Eric Koenigl is uh, the, the father of it all. <clears throat> in that safety two world he classes safety differently he still has safety one on his website mm -hmm. um he's got a whole page on it which, uh, which is interesting because we do i suppose you, you you're correct there that we do tie them all with the same brush whereas eric quite clearly states that safety differently is still safety one and 
So it's interesting that I always kind of, I was talking to, to like I said before we started recording, Sam Goodman um, from the Hot Nerd podcast a couple of um, days ago. And we were talking about this, uh, this kind of argument, debate, wedge, divide, whatever you want to call it in the industry between the two so-called camps of safety one and safety two. And, uh, and I like Sam and I like the way he looks at stuff and he's quite controversial like me. I, I call him my, the American version of me. Um, we're so similar. <laughs> um, but I did say to him, like, you have to, you have to kind of consider as well that if you've worked in safety one, for example, for 20 years and that's your career and you've, you've built a career on it, you're a world leading expert at it, for example. And then boom, Sidney Decker comes along and writes his book and says, you know, that's all crap. This is all, this is all much better. Uh, do this safe, do safety differently. There's going to be some amnesty in that. There's going to be some, some fight back in that. But then it's interesting that then Eric comes along and says, well, actually Sydney, you're, you're part of the problem as well. <laughs> I wonder if Sydney thinks the same as what the safety one people think. And I'd like to see, I would love to see it one day. And I know, I know Paul Clark's working on something similar, but I'd like to see Sydney, Eric, Todd, and then, you know, a few people like Tim Marsh, Dominic Cooper, maybe all in a room together, just hopefully professionally, but debating it out and, and, and really having that, that debate. But it is interesting, that whole transition we go through. What do you, um, I, th- I think there's a lot of, I don't want to get into the, I don't want to get into as much as it is tempting. I don't want to get into the, the debate around safety one and safety two, but I think, I think, inevitably in your story i think we'll address a couple of things maybe um i think a couple of things that come back at this from the safety one camp is like i know you you briefly touched on it is that you know the removal of rules we're advocating no rules we're advocating no paperwork no uh, accountability um you know there's no there's no accountability it's probably one of the biggest ones there's no evidence of this works the science is qualitative and not quantitative um i think all of that stuff will probably come out in your story which is what like i said in the beginning what i think was important about this is if we just focus on the actual do what you did yeah however there is one thing I would like to touch on briefly before we go forward is that the way you talk about a risk assessment as a, in essence, how I would call it, like a risk assessment is an enabler to, to do what we need to do. So I think you're, you're 100% right. in the way that we look at risk assessment currently is probably for two things. One highlight as many hazards as possible, like you're getting paid per hazard um, is what some, some of them look like. Um, and two to kind of you know mitigate absolutely or eliminate absolutely everything that we can and three probably cover our ass a little bit it's not seen as Mm. as a how do we do the job it's how can we stop doing the job is what it feels like to me um and look you're kind of saying in a similar way that's what safety two says but one of my main arguments around this whole debate is it's a I feel like that's what the legislation in the UK, at least, and granted you started from a, from a flight safety background, but that's how I always thought of safety was that mm-hmm. we're an enabler. My job is to go on the shop floor, talk to the people doing the job. They're the experts, not me. I'm a, I'm a risk assessing expert. If, if you're going to call me anything, they're the work expert. They know the machine, they know whatever they're doing. I'm just there to 
I call it facilitate a conversation to work out how we can do the job as safely as possible. That's the way I describe it. So for me, the frustration is, it's, I think the argument should actually be, and I did put this to Dominic actually when I spoke to him yesterday, um, not safety one versus safety two, but good implementation of safety and bad implementation of safety is what I think we should be arguing about. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree with that. Um, personally, you know, you look around and you see a lot of a lot of people that maybe maybe it's at a consultancy level or maybe people that are embedded in organisations have maybe taken theories or taken uh, programmes and not necessarily implemented them in the way that was originally intended. Um, a good example of that uh, would be the Swiss cheese model. So James Reason came up with the Swiss cheese model in the 90s. Obviously, that was based on some, some other historical findings from, from many decades ago. Um, but he intended that just as a, as a model, not to be turned into some kind of risk assessment process and tool. And actually, you know, fairly recently came out and said that wasn't his intention. So anything that's created can be misused um, beyond the original uh, meaning that, that was put out by the person that created it. Um, so I, yeah, I totally agree. I, I also agree that risk assessment or risk management is there to help the business achieve its objectives. Uh, my major role at CAFE um, on paper was around risk management, just helping the business to manage its risks. As part of that, I did a, a training course, one day training course that got about 300 people through it across the business. And the main, one of the main takeaways from that was that this process is there to help you achieve your objectives by helping you to understand how your operation really works, identify the unintended consequences that could come from something like a change so that you can protect yourself against it. But it really does come back to, it boils down to, this process is here to help you achieve your objectives. So it needs to be embedded into how you do your day-to-day -day work as a management team, not seen as a, uh, you know, an additional piece of work that they have to do to get the change over the line. The, the other thing I just want to touch on is we often talk about, you know, this, in this debate, safety one versus safety two. Mm -hmm. My personal view, and, and some people say safety one and safety two, my personal view is that for me, it's just safety two. But if you come back to what I said earlier, it's about the different paradigm and a broader scope. The broader scope of safety two includes everything we already look at in safety one. And this is probably part of the issue is, is the labeling. One and two suggests that it's some kind of binary progression and that number two is totally different from number one. It is in terms of the paradigm, but it's not in terms of the scope. The scope of safety two includes safety one. So I personally wouldn't say I'm safety one and safety two. I would just say I'm safety too if I had to label myself because mm. I'm still looking at everything we already normally look at in the traditional world, but I'm looking at it through a different lens. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. And I think that, that is, um, that's what a couple of people say, I think, but I, I do like the way you, you kind of, um, I like the way you kind of put it. And, and I think, you know, when talking, I spoke to Tim Marsh and, and he said that Eric himself, he does just a, like I say, we need to make sure we don't go down this rabbit hole because once we're in it, it's, we'll become Alice ourselves and I'll be the man. So. Um, um, but just to quickly, I think Tim, Tim Marsh would probably come back and say, 
um, you know, Eric himself says in his work that it's safety two off the back of safety one. Um, so I've mm-hmm. always kind of said that we, we do have to acknowledge that safety one got us to a position of, to where we are now. And, and we do have to yeah. hat tip to that, I think, and say, thank yeah. you. And, and we're not saying you're wrong. We're saying that this is, uh, this is maybe the next evolutionary step or, or whatever, however you want to call it. But I think that one of the biggest problems is, and I think Sydney probably started this. And, and if I, if he ever emails me back, I, I'll keep chasing him to get him on the podcast. And if he ever does email me back and I have him on, I will, I will challenge him on this. I think he talks about behavior-based safety. One, I think he met, misrepresents it a little bit. And two, I think he talks about it quite derogatively in his book. And I think partially that and phrases like anarchism, um, probably started this debate when actually it i think i feel like eric's trying to say it's a thank you safety one now come with me let's let's do the next bit which is maybe a little bit more broader like you say yeah and it's acknowledging that every every new theory stands on the shoulders of giants exactly so it's a great way to put it we wouldn't we wouldn't be where we are right now if it wasn't for heinrich Mm. You know, yes, yeah. in, a, in, in the 21st century, we may, with what we know now, we may look at some of his research and say, well, actually, this doesn't really hold water now. But you have to understand where he was at when he was Context. coming up with that, that, that data, right? So one of the principles in, in a safety to approach is we're trying to understand why it makes sense for people to do what they do. Rather than judge their performance with the benefit of hindsight, we say, why did it make sense for that person to do what they did? And we should apply the exact same principle to ac- academic theories and, and, and the people that came up with them in the past and say, well, it made sense to them at the time based on the information they had. Mm-hmm. Um, so we all stand on the shoulders of giants. Every, every single theory comes from a previous theory. Everything is received wisdom. People are taking theories from here, 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 and here, and they're combining them, adding their own wisdom to form something new. That's mm-hmm. innovation, right? Innovation, new things don't come out of thin air. An original idea that you're just kind of changing, you're, 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 you're evolving it. So yeah, I think evolution is, is the right way to look at it. I mean, you could use the metaphor of music as well. All of the popular music that we listen to now can all find its roots if you just go back to a certain distance mm. in, in you know, the deep south of the US where blues and, and rock and roll originated. Yeah. Um, and if we if we'd never had people like Robert Johnson in the US, then we wouldn't now have some of the popular music we have now. It's exactly the same in safety. You wouldn't have safety two and resilience engineering if you didn't have all of the theories that came before it. That's a great way to put it. I great. I never thought of that music analogy, but the second you said it, I was like, mm. Yeah, that's spot on. That is actually spot on. Do you know what I mean? You never you would never say you would never put blues and and heavy metal in the same room, but yet they are like intrinsically connected throughout their their kind yeah. of genetics. Yeah, wow. Yeah, I like that. See, I like the way you talk about things, Adam. Well done. <laughs> uh, okay, so was was the, let's 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 get onto the cafe term journey. Then was yeah. the the kind of shift into the safety two camp? Was that was that already there was it already happening or was it like was there a pivotal moment where we went something's not 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 getting us to that next step and we need to take this like how did that shift come or was it already there when you started 
Um, maybe if I just give a bit of context, because some people might not have heard of Cathay Pacific before I do that. So Cathay is a very large airline. Um, at the time I joined, it was made up of two different airlines, Cathay Pacific and Dragonair, that then became Cathay Dragon. They now have four airlines in their broader group. Um, but overall, you're looking at about 200 aircraft, um, over 100 destinations that they fly to, um, you know, operating all of the most modern jets, uh, Boeing and Airbus. So it's a very big airline within, within the context of Asia, but not maybe not necessarily well known in Europe or North America, as you might British Airways or American Airlines. So that's just a bit of context about Cathay. Um, when I arrived at Cathay, the, the ideas around safety too, and I, I will just use that label as a, to yeah. simplify things, but, but it is for literally for me just a label. Yeah, it's just a label. Um, that wasn't really around at the time. And, and I had personally started to engage with those ideas um, sort of preceding year or two, but not necessarily really knowing what to do with it. And even in the first sort of year or two of my time at Cafe, again, still kind of learning about this stuff, but didn't really know what to do with it. I wouldn't say that there was any particular moment in time where we kind of went, oh, you know, light bulb moment for me or for the organization that this is a direction we need to travel. It was more just a gradual growth in the amount of conversation that was taking place about maybe seeing a different way of doing what we're doing. So it's not like there was a dissatisfaction with either the data, what the data was producing or, or with how things were going. It was more a case of, well, actually, you know, uh, more broadly in the aviation industry, we know that we had an amazing few decades in the past that brought accident rates down, but we've now reached this kind of plateau. Um, and there are some, still some serious issues in the industry, but if you just judge things in terms of fatal accidents or accidents, we are a kind of a plateau. So if we want to get to that next level of performance and, you know, and where we are at the thin end of the wedge, then we need to do something differently. And safety too, again, coming back to this idea of a generative image, it offers us that opportunity to say, well, actually, this is, a, this is something we can use to, to move us forward. We can sort of change our view of, of safety, change our view of the world, um, increase the scope with which we gather data, and we can use that to try and get to that next level of performance. So it wasn't, like I say, it wasn't like a light bulb moment. It was just the fact that these conversations about seeing the world differently just grew and grew and grew and grew. The number of people talking about it and kind of championing it grew and grew and grew. And then the people that really have the um, authority to make the changes started to become more interested in it. And then it, it was very organic is probably the best word to use. Okay, fair enough. What what were the kind of what were the kind of conversations like like an attitudes is probably a better word around that like mm. so so with with um and maybe this is is kind of like standing on the shoulder of the giant kind of thing that what you were saying there like with with flight safety being you know such high risk to a point you know if something goes wrong we're talking hundreds of you know people god knows i don't i have no idea how many people we can fit in a plane but it's probably scary i think i'd rather not know how many actually uh, <laughs> but we can get hundreds of people in a plane put them way up in the air do do what if you're if you're religious which i'm not you know do, do something that god never intended for us to do um and you're you're in this kind of you're you're in this kind of plane and then you're like right now we're gonna experiment with a different safety management system was was it that safety one or how we kind of the, the airline had got to a, a good enough point to be quite comfortable 
with coming up with something else or were there like nervous attitudes around it? Um, um, do, you, do you get what I'm trying to say? By the yeah. way, I don't believe um, that God think... intended us to fly or anything. I'm not, I'm not religious. Before, <laughs> but I just thought it was a good example. Yeah. 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 I guess. Yeah. Uh, um, so Cathay, like most modern commercial airlines has a very mature safety management system. Mm. So very, very good at, um, you know, investigating, safety occurrences, very good at uh, risk assessing, very good at monitoring performance. So yeah, I guess you could say there was a, an acceptance that everything we've done to date had got us to a very good place, but that if we wanted to get to the next level of performance, the next sort of order of magnitude, um, then we needed to kind of see things a bit differently. So I guess another phrase you could throw in here is it's not, it's not about throwing the baby out of the bathwater. And, and that kind of, again, comes back to my my personal view of how safety two includes safety one in terms of its scope. We're not, mm. not investigating. We're not getting rid of rules that are absolutely appropriate. So to, to throw a phrase in around that, it's, it's kind of not throwing the baby out with the bathwater. So my, my view of safety two is that it includes safety one. It includes everything we already look at, it includes all, all the investigations we, we, we always do. Um, but it's about seeing it in a different way and, and seeing how we can, get to that next level of performance by taking a slightly different view, a slightly different approach to the way that we're, we're looking at safety. So if you've got that kind of skeptic, I still can't say it, those skeptics, you, yeah. you're, you're saying, yeah. look, we're not, <laughs> we're not getting rid of the systems. We're keeping the systems. We're just, we're yeah. just approaching how we think about those systems um, in a different, in a different light, um, which I suppose, did, did you find that that calmed, those skeptics down or, or whether even skeptics in the first place or yeah i think some people become some you know skepticism i think is is a is a good trait to have in an organization um mm. cynicism probably goes a bit too far but you know if people mm. people are skeptical about what's going on and, and use that skepticism constructively um to ch- kind of challenge new ways of doing things or existing ways of doing things then then that's positive to me um mm. and actually the more skeptical people are the more robust what you're trying to do becomes Mm. because if everybody just says oh that sounds good just do it then chances are what you're trying to achieve isn't going to be as good as it could be whereas Mm. if people say you know it's a bit like having a devil's advocate you know that is able to expand the 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 thinking within a risk assessment for instance you just say well i like what you're saying but i'm worried about this this and this and then it causes you to go oh actually that's interesting that you have those concerns let me think about how we can address them. Mm. Some people, once you've explained how you can address them, will then go, oh, okay, I'm, I'm happy to get on board now. Other people will say, well, actually, I'd rather we, uh, I don't really believe you yet. And then you went again, right? <sighs> that, that's twice. So let's just go audio from here on out. Okay. Let's turn the videos off. Uh, man. Yeah, I'm sorry about that. I don't, yeah, I don't know if it's just um, bandwidth issues generally in various places because of uh, everyone's at home still. Mm, yeah, I, to be honest, that was probably one of the first things I said in the beginning was I'd be surprised if the internet can keep up with all these people on Zoom. And to mm. be honest, I, I, I think it's done quite well so far. So I've only seriously started getting issues these last couple of days. Um, right. Mm. 
I've, uh, I've pretty much uh, forgot where we are, but we'll, we'll just crack on. Um, so I think that's, that's interesting. Do you think you, you talk about the way you talk about the kind of, um, you know, managing that, that skepticism uh, in the, uh, in, in that conversation is quite interesting because I feel like you're talking about it with still with that safety two hat on. It's like saying, well, yes, you're skeptic. I'm not going to fight against that. I'm actually going to embrace that because you could improve this. Do you think that mindset come from your work within, uh, you know, your education and within that safety two uh, framework or whatever we want to call it? Or, or we, have you always been like that? It's just quite interesting. I think it, you're looking at the skeptics through a, a quite a positive lens is what I'm trying to say. Um, I guess to a certain extent, it might just be a personal characteristic of mine um but it 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 could be related to my my view of the world being through a safety two lens uh Mm -hmm. difficult to kind of pinpoint that i guess that's a fair point so do you think there are like were there were there like tangible physical differences in in like the actual visual systems or or names or titles or or things that, that you were doing um at cafe where like you're saying because so how as you're saying it is kind of it's, it's keeping the safety one stuff but looking at it through a different lens was there was there anything that actually physically changed yeah um so maybe if i start by talking about language um so you know, i don't claim i don't claim to be a language expert or um or in any sense but one of the things that i learned early on in terms of trying to achieve some form of change was that if you want to change safety you need to change the language people use to describe it so if you played word association with somebody or a group of people and and said to them you know if i say safety name 10 words that that you think of when you hear that word Mm. you typically hear words like risk hazard accident incident um, error non-compliance violation this this kind of language um, and it's not to say that that language doesn't have its place. Certainly hazards and risks do. But what you find is a lot of it is very negative. It's very pejorative language. Um, mm. And if you think, you know, if you, if you subscribe to the idea that words create worlds, um, which is a phrase that we were, we were using within the organization, then people make sense of the world through the language they use or through the language that, that they hear in conversation. So if we always talk about safety using that more negative, pejorative language, then we're probably going to have a very negative view about how we manage safety in the organization. What we decided to do was try to evolve that language. So we tried to kind of eliminate any words that we felt were not helpful. So words like violation, words like non-compliance. When, when we're dealing in safety management world, my personal view and, and the view of many other people in, in that organization, that those words do not help us. Mm. They might help us in other areas of how we're trying to manage the business, but in safety, they really don't help us. So instead, we, we identified a vocabulary that we wanted to use to describe safety management, to describe human and organizational performance. And I'm not saying those, that term to kind of make a reference to HOP. Um, to talk more about complexity, to talk about learning to talk about capacity performance variability work as imagined and work as done um, emergence obviously i'm just reeling off terms here but they, they have a meaning within within the organization within the conversation trade-offs goal conflicts 
pressures, demands, influences, conditions. This is the language that we wanted to implement into the organization to describe safety management and to describe performance. And you know, my advice to anybody that's trying to evolve how they do safety was you've got to start with the language. You have to try and change the way people talk about safety because if you don't do that, then you're not going to be able to change the way that people ultimately think about it and the way that they do it. Mm. I, I like that. I, I like that, and that's very, that's extremely similar to um, just not, not to keep mentioning plugging Sam's podcast, but he had two gentlemen on that were talking about how they'd implemented um, a hop principle within their workplace, and um, and they were talking about language as well, um, which was pretty yeah. much exactly the same as, as as kind of what you were talking about there. And did 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 you find that you were it started like with yourself and maybe a couple of other advocates for this, for this change that you, you led that, that change yourself by, by actually just say, for example, uh, this gentleman in a podcast was saying, you know, when any, anyone ever come to me and says, we've had an incident, he would just say, Oh, we've had an event. Um, and, and he just kept doing yeah. that. And eventually that kind of drip fed in a, in a way to use a very, uh, kind of immature, immature way to describe it. Um, it kind of drip fed the industry that changed extremely slowly. Do you think was was that something that you kind of picked up on that the first thing that needed to change was actually how you spoke about it, and then the rest would follow? Yes, yeah. You have to lead by example, so to speak. Yeah. And initially, you know, it was me and a couple of other people, um, and you know, we 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 created kind of a, a little group for ourselves that we called the Safety Nerds. Um, because you know we were we were talking about this stuff but we were also sharing lots of articles and papers and books and stuff and having ideas and using whatsapp to communicate a lot of that and then that nerd group essentially grew bigger and bigger um to a point where you've got enough you almost got a critical mass of people using this language both in meetings and in kind of uh, one-to-one conversations with people and eventually that starts to tip the balance um, over towards this new way of thinking. So the people that aren't necessarily in that kind of core nerd group, but are actually kind of responsible for managing safety in the operation, they start to use that language as well. And one of the most kind of significant activities that I did last year to try and move the language in this direction was um, badging it as continuous improvement. I introduced a gender item to, into all of our safety meetings. So we had a safety meeting for each operational domain every month, which was then um, brought together by an operations wide safety meeting at the more senior level. And I introduced concept of safety too very briefly at the start of the year and then introduced new language um, throughout that year by providing a five minute article that the members could read before the meeting. And that was the, the, the agreement. It wouldn't, it would not take longer than five minutes to read. And then there would be a 10 minute presentation and discussion around that article within the meeting and in some instances it didn't really generate much debate but in others it it really did generate a lot of debate and the sorts of terms we were using were things like chronic unease um, which isn't a safety to term or or sort of a a newer view term but it's definitely important Um, the efficiency thoroughness trade-off local rationality workers imagined and workers done the difference between complicated and complex systems resilience so bringing this language into those meetings as well as having conversations using this language outside of the meetings was almost, it was sort of all combining together to try and move the conversation in that direction. Um, And actually you're you're like this, one of the, um, one of the presentations I gave on local rationality 
um, when giving that presentation to the meeting that included this, the chief operating officer, I showed the video from South Park of Captain Hindsight, mm -hmm. which which could have been a bit of a risk. Um, but thankfully, that clip doesn't have any swearing in it. Um, but if you've not seen the Captain Hindsight clip, then that, that really does articulate the principle of local rationality or the need to move away from hindsight very, very well. So that was a bit of a risk to do that, but it paid off in the end. I like that. I love it when we can take clips from you know the everyday kind of pop culture or every kind of everyday life or what we watch in our spare time and utilize it to communicate a message i've, I've been doing that for a long time i love i love it when you see when you see stuff like that i used to use um yeah. clips from the office quite a lot i, I remember when uh, i did a lot of fire <laughs> uh fire safety work and stuff like that and um there's a there's a great clip of uh, the fire warden in the american office uh where he starts a fire in the office um yeah to 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 mimic the, the it well. it. but yeah oh yeah i do i love yeah i love doing stuff like that so hats off to you was, <laughs> there was um was a language like was that that was the main that was the real big kind of pivotal change or was there was there other kind of stuff going on or was it was that really the key thing yeah so that was definitely the foundation that um drove a lot of the the subsequent activity um, so a couple of things I can I can talk about. One was um, last year we had the opportunity to present uh, about safety management to our training captains. So the training captains represent about 10% of the workforce, the pilot workforce. So you're talking about 300, 350 people. And across the um, across about 10 workshops, we, we essentially talked to them about safety too, but how we wanted them to help us implement it. Um, without going into too much detail about that particular workshop, one thing I just want to share is um, we asked them a question. I said, think about the last time you went flying, um, you know, whether it was uh, as, a, as, a, as a training captain or as a, or as a regular line pilot. And think wrong in inverted commas and how often things went right. And then we asked them in small groups of three or four on a flip chart to write down all of the factors that influenced their performance on that flight so it could have been something like you know the aircraft had technical issues and they hadn't flown for a long time they had an inexperienced crew um, they had uh, issues with air traffic control or delays or whatever it may be anything that could have influenced their performance both positively and negatively and obviously traditionally you'll get mostly negative things um, went through the groups you know probably end up with about 20 distinct discrete issues and then we asked them the question how many of these issues did you report to us via an air safety report which is kind of the the traditional report form they would use to tell us about safety issues and almost no hands go up across 300 people and that was a real um kind of light bulb moment both for us as presenters of this but also for those as as sort of participants was that so much of what goes on is so normal it's just normal to them they don't report that information to us but it is challenges that they're having to manage on a day-to-day -day basis. So what we did then was say, well, actually, you as training captains have an opportunity to, to ensure that we actually have more information, more intelligence about what's really going on out there on the front line. You know, you are the most senior pilots, you're the most respected. What can you do as trainers to try and help us get access to more information about what's really going on out there? That was kind of one area that we, we kind of tackled to try and move us in this direction in terms of the frontline workforce. So it's kind of like 
all those challenges that they that they were getting had just become part of the job and because they had just become part of the job the rest of the business was kind of not even aware of of all those challenges that were that the pilots were, were yeah. experiencing on a daily basis yeah and what you'll typically find in in any airline is that the safety reports that they receive represent about two percent of everything that goes on in terms of you know so two percent of flights will receive some kind of safety report that means that 98 percent of the flights don't receive any safety report um but that doesn't mean that there's nothing happening in those flights that's worth learning about that's worth knowing about so safety two is all about changing the unit of analysis away from just accidents and incidents and near misses towards understanding normal work so understanding what it takes to get normal work done what 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 are the me- the messes that people have to deal with how do people cope how do people how are people resilient against these challenges that ultimately leads them to be successful because even even in in a flight safety event even when you have a flight safety event in the vast majority of cases that event has been managed by the crew so that it doesn't get to a a level of consequence that we're really concerned about it will have gone to a certain point of, of consequence but it doesn't go any further the reason it doesn't go any further isn't necessarily because of luck it's because the crew were able to manage that threat or manage that error to prevent it from getting any further so what we, we really want to understand is what did they do how did they do that and to use that information more broadly across the organization to enhance safety is, is is that is that kind of description would that fall into into the right category to say that you're you're trying to understand their capacity trying to understand their capacity like you said yeah. the capacity of that crew took them to a certain consequence um but because they had that capacity to deal with that it didn't go to a further um consequence would that be a, a reasonable layman's kind of description of capacity yeah 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 absolutely right yeah so so the crews what, what some people refer to as adaptive capacity. Mm. So typically what you'll find in, in these events, um, let, let's say just to put an example so people can, can kind of visualize it. Let's say your aircraft lose, uh, becomes too close to another aircraft. And when I say too close, I don't mean that they fly literally over the top of each other. I mean mm. that they, 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 they lose what's called procedural separation. So they become closer than they should be in terms of the safety margins that are built into the system. Mm. Um, typically a combination of standard operating procedures and that crew's ability to adapt their performance in a situation that they've never been trained for come together to, to prevent that loss of separation from getting any worse. So that's why you'll find that in the industry, you know, there are, you know, throughout the year, there are a lot of losses of procedural separation, but there are almost no mid-air collisions. Hmm. And, and yeah, and that is because of that adaptive capacity. The crew and yeah. they they have the procedures, but they also have the ability to kind of think more broadly about the situation and say, well, actually, that procedure will get us this far, but we also need to do these things to to keep us safe. Mm. Um, how how do you kind of um, logistically deal with that? To kind of jump back to those those kind of two statistics that you got. So you got a. Uh, a flight safety report if, if that's the incorrect term i apologize um you got your report for two percent of your flight if i remember rightly of your flights um yeah. that leaves you like you say 98 percent um 
of your flights and not having any any kind of reports come back as as a kind of safety team or professional within that organization logistically how do you deal with that you know tomorrow for example you've gone from having two percent of reports to read to having 98 percent of flight reports to read how, how do you, logistically how do you manage that or is it or does it is it not look like that yeah so i think i think um i think in a way that that is one of the misunderstandings of of safety too is that it's about yeah. getting all of the data about every single operation which it really isn't um although in in flight operations you do get um recorded flight data from you know what you might call the black boxes of every single flight that's quantitative data that tells you what happened can't tell you why it happened um, safety two isn't about collecting some form of data on every single operation because we know that safety departments would be overwhelmed you, you you could put in all the automation in the world but you're not going to be able to actually extract learning from every single one of those reports mm. it's about getting a better understanding of what normal work looks like so there's a there's a, a long-standing process in, in in flight operations called losa stands for line operations safety audit and what that does is it involves a, a third person sort of sitting on the jump seat in the flight deck. And what they do is they observe the operation. They don't intervene. They're not part of the crew. Their job is to follow a process um, of data gathering about the threats and errors that, that sort of occur within that operation, any undesired aircraft states that occur, uh, and any sort of mitigating actions that are taken by the crew to address those. Um, and what typically happens is that you either collect that data every couple of years as a, sort of like a sample or you do it in a more continuous way. What that's doing is it's gathering data on normal work, but you're doing it in a sampling way. You're not doing it by saying, right, we're going to do this on every single flight. Mm. You say, right, over, over the next two months, we're going to collect um, a thousand samples by having people fly around on these, on these jump seats. And then we're going to collect all that data together. And that just gives us a snapshot in time, a sample of data to try and understand normal work better. So again, this misconception that Safety 2 is about collecting data on everything. It, we, all, we know that that's just not possible. It's about you know, yeah. collecting more information, not all of the information. Mm. And I think some people would probably say, Oh, well, that that that's the same as like a a behavioural based safety observation. But I suppose would, would your would your kind of challenge come back to be it, it's important or or maybe not even challenge, but point to make that it's important that when you're doing that um, flight safety observation or, or audit to to use your words, is it it's important that they're yeah. doing it through that lens of understanding the work and and. And it's not it's not yes. it's not being done to say to catch out the pilot and the and the rest of the crew the crew to say right you've done this wrong you didn't follow procedure blah 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 that's an important shift I would assume. Yeah, and and, and for me obviously coming from a flight safety background, I don't you know, behaviour based safety as a program or as a concept or as a theory doesn't really exist in that world of flight safety. Um, okay. Some some of some of the elements of it might, but. Behavior-based safety is actually a term I only came across when I started um, working more in the people safety world a few years ago, oh, okay. but not for my entire career. So, but the difference that I would say in terms of how uh, you know how you would observe normal work in a in a safety two context as opposed to a behavior-based safety context is that 
you don't make any value judgments about the work that you're observing. So you don't classify behavior as unsafe or you don't classify acts as unsafe. Because what that does is it assumes that there is only one safe way to do things. What you do in a safety two context when you're observing work is you're just literally observing it in a neutral, unbiased way. Your job isn't to look at what's happening and say, that's unsafe. Your job is to just say, that's what they're doing. And once I've gathered that data, I'm then going to try and find out why it made sense to them to do what they did. You know, so if a pilot um, carries out an act that ultimately leads to some kind of um, undesirable event, we don't judge that act as unsafe because we can only do that with knowledge of the outcome. What we do is we say, could you explain to me why, why it made sense to you to do, to do what you did? Because people only do things that make sense to them, given their goals, their understanding of the situation and their focus of attention at the time. So nobody actually ever does anything that they think is unsafe. It's only unsafe after the fact. People do things because they're trying to get the work done. So we want to try and understand it. And, and as Sidney Decker would say, stay inside the tunnel with them mm. rather than with knowledge of the outcome, judge their performance and say, well, actually, that was unsafe what you did there because they didn't know it was unsafe at the time. And it, in my view, it adds no value to say, to sort of categorize oh. behavior in that way. Oh, excuse me. Sorry. It's all over your good, your good speech. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was, um, it's interesting. And I think, um, I think that's, in, that's important. And that kind of brings me to one to, to like my next question, I suppose would be like, how important is, is it so you so let, let, let's let's kind of let's kind of follow that process you got you've gone and done your flight flight observation you you've got all your you've collected all your data you've you're, you're getting an understanding of of the context of that or, or what happened and then in, i suppose the next step when you're trying to understand the context of that decision that was made by the crew it's important that well is it important that you do that with them so it's, it's it's that employee engagement piece and having that conversation with them to try and understand and and i suppose it's also important to to note that you need to be coming from a position of understanding as opposed to a position of, of potential blame um otherwise that would probably yeah. skew the results would it yeah so, so one of the key phrases that, that we've been using was curiosity without judgment. Mm, so like whenever you're trying to understand the performance that, that somebody has just had, you want to approach that with curiosity, but you want to leave judgment out. And I guess that kind of brings me on to kind of the major implementation, as it were, of safety two within CAFE, which is what we call the operational learning review. So the operational learning review is essentially a process to ensure that learning is the core goal of safety management. And this was rolled out within the flight operations department um, around uh, August of last year. What it does is it says this process is here to facilitate organizational learning by applying a safety to approach to understanding what's going on in our operation so the, the the major place that you're going to start doing that is by learning from events learning from occurrences or incidents although we wouldn't use the term incidents so that's i guess one one lesson just as an aside is that safety two isn't necessarily about 
having to collect more data. Initially, it's about treating the data or the, or the information you already have in a different way. So the operational learning review, which was actually very much based on some work that was done by Dr. Ivan Popolidi, uh, who used to work at the US Forest Service, he introduced something he called the learning review into that organization. But the operational learning review at CAFE is about saying an event has occurred. We want to learn as much as we possibly can from that event. The best way to do that with the people that were involved in it, so the pilots that were involved, is to talk to them with curiosity and leave the judgment out. And it's very easy to say that. It's very much harder to do it. And I think that's partly where safety to if you were to kind of implement it in some kind of strategic sense, it is, it's about a philosophical change. It's about saying, this is, these are the principles by which we will manage safety. These are the principles by which we will treat people in the safety system. And you have to stick religiously to those principles, because if you don't, then you're going to break the integrity of that system. So, for instance, we're here to understand why it made sense to people to do what they did in the context of an event. It doesn't have to be an event. It could be anything. It could be a non-event. You know, you could go, you know, you could go and meet a crew off a flight and say, let's have a chat about what happened on your flight and, and whether or not there's anything to learn. But obviously, a, a, safety, a safety occurrence is the easiest way to, to start this process. So what you do is you, within this OLR process, is... You know, you've probably got a safety report from the crew. That, that report's probably going to be fairly brief. It's going to say this thing happened um, and we managed it and we moved on. What you're then going to do is have a conversation with that, with that crew, but you're not going to call it an interview. You're going to call it a learning review meeting. This is within, within CAFE's world. The purpose of that learning review meeting is to understand the local rationality of the decisions that were made that led to that event, but probably also led to that event being managed. And in that conversation, you're gonna ask questions in a very, very specific way, avoiding the possibility that you're perceiving judging that person. So you're asking them, you know, can you explain to me what was going through your mind when this happened? That's a very different question to asking, why did you do that? Because mm. as soon as you ask a professional, why they did something they're going to see that as an attack on their professionalism so although you actually do want to understand why you ask you must ask the question in a different way to solicit the answer you want because what you're dealing with is you're dealing with people who are able to help you you want to make them willing to help you as well mm. so you've got to do that by the way that you ask the questions and the way that you ask the questions ultimately is driven by the philosophy of why you're doing what you're doing mm. I love that. How and that do philosophy with... is all about avoid. Yeah. Go on, go on. Sorry, go on. I was just going to say that philosophy is all about um, leaving leaving judgment outside. You have mm. to you have to be talking to people purely because you want to learn from them because they are the experts in in what's just happened. Your job is to is to milk their brain so that you can learn what happened and how you can make improvements as a result, rather than prescribe some form of judgment value judgment to what happened describing their performance as unsafe or that they violated a procedure or that they were non-compliant with that procedure it really doesn't add any value to talk about it in those terms because you're not going to get the information you need from those people 
milk their brain is definitely something I'm going to remember. That is, <laughs> I'm stealing that one. How, how I'm glad do you, you took that, that away from me. <laughs> how, how do you deal with that? Um, uh, that, that that kind of you know if you i think the argument from the safety one camp would be what what so you're not you're not going to hold any, anyone to account was, was that something that you that you came across in the beginning of this process did anyone say how do we hold a pilot to account yeah. if they just generally did do something wrong um yeah and 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 how how did if that did happen so does it happen and and did it did it happen um how did how did you go down that route of actually holding someone to account um if that makes sense yeah that's uh, a really good question so yes there was some skepticism about how we would hold people to account under this new process um the answer to that is when you're trying to learn from everything that you've just gathered, so you've gathered the sense making. So you understand, firstly, you understand the context, you understand what, what was going on in, in that situation. And the only way you can really understand the context is to put the person you're learning from at ease. So they, they are willing to help you. Then you understand the sense making. So why did it make sense to them to do, do what they did? And that's then ultimately going to lead you to understanding their resilience. So what, performance did they exhibit that was positive that helped to prevent this event from leading to something worse mm. once you've done that and you've kind of understood what controls are in place and, and whether or not they're successful because again safety two isn't about throwing out this idea of control it's about understanding control in a different way but then when we get to the learning so this is this is very much about accountability but it's to sort of take from from decker's language this isn't about retributive accountability this is about restorative accountability so it's not about holding people to account for mistakes they've made or errors they've made or, or violations they've made in the past it's about holding them to account for learning and improving going forward the, the next part of this that's really really crucial is that when we learn we have to try and extract the learning at the system level first so for instance, if you carry out an operational learning review that identifies some issues with the training of the person that, that committed this error, that tells you something about your system. Mm -hmm. So before you go anywhere near trying to implement some form of in, uh, intervention on the individual, you need to look at interventions at the system level first. So for instance, if you're dealing with a pilot that as a result of this event, you deem shouldn't actually be a captain. So maybe they were promoted to be a captain and now you're saying, well, actually this event tells us they're probably not actually ready to be a captain yet. Rather than going straight to that person and demoting them, you say, well, actually, what is it about our training system that enabled this person to become a captain when they're not actually ready? So we need to learn at that level first. So before you go anywhere near individual learning, you have to look at, and again, milk, milk the event for learning at the system level. Once you've done that, you then can look at learning at the individual level. But a major thing that was implemented as part of this operational learning view at Cathay was when we try and identify what the individual or what the crew need, rather than going to them and saying, you are going to have X, Y, Z, you're going to have this training, you're going to have this, you know, you might be getting demoted or whatever. You go to them and say, what do you think you need to improve your performance? What do you think you need to be accountable for learning so the accountability is to learn not the accountability to be held to account for something you did in the past 
Mm. So for instance, you know, what, what might have resulted in a demotion to a pilot in the past is now you're going to them and saying, what do you think you need? They will come up with something. If you think that that's acceptable, then you will let them do that. You know, maybe it's, I want to go in the simulator for, for 10, 10 sorties to try and see if I can do this, do this better. But that doesn't mean that you can't then say, well, actually, yeah, that's great. But also we want you to do this. But what you've done by doing that is you've made them accountable for their own learning and development. You've given them the opportunity to be, to sort of have some autonomy to a degree. It doesn't mean that you can't say, we will also ask you to do this, this, and this, but at least you've given them the opportunity to be accountable for themselves, to be responsible for themselves. So safety too isn't at all about pushing accountability to the front line and, and kind of absolving management of accountability. It's about sharing that and saying, we're accountable for learning, you're accountable for learning, but let's actually take responsibility for that ourselves rather than expecting other people to, to impose it upon us. How, how do you deal with those situations? Or did you ever have a situation? And if so, how did you deal with it? But like of where there, there is no system learning and that, that crew member, whether it's a pilot or, or whatever, just generally, genuinely was, you know, just acting out of turn, being whole, you know, just being a nasty person. Whether I don't, I don't really know that it's hard to kind of give you a scenario without context, mm. but it's you turning up drunk or, or something like that, and obviously there's context to so that. Might be family yeah. problems and stuff like that. But when the context is yeah. maybe out out of control of of the business, how, how do you kind of deal with that from a yeah. safety two point of view? Hmm. Well, for me, you know, whether if someone turns up drunk. Um, that isn't a safety issue that needs to be managed by the safety organization. That is an HR issue. Yes, there are safety consequences to somebody flying drunk, um, mm -hmm. but the fact that they've done that is an HR issue. The safety function's job is to learn. So we might be able to say, well, let's try and understand <laughs> in a way why it made sense for this pilot to turn up drunk. So that's about understanding the context of their life. So there is still, there's always something to learn. Yeah. But the safety function's job is is just to facilitate learning. The safety department's job is not to use pejorative language to deal with that person if we feel that they need to be disciplined or something. That's an HR issue. And I feel that organizations maybe need to make it clearer where the boundary is between what the safety function's purpose is and what the HR function's purpose is. Mm. Interesting. I, I personally haven't come across... Uh, though and any any event of that nature myself but but your point is to say what is 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 essentially not to make the decision but to present the evidence of, of the context from your learning review exactly yeah but but to have but to have generated that evidence evidence purely through curiosity yeah we we have to leave the judgment at the door we any for me and and I know that some people might might will, will definitely not agree with this and that's fine but for me any language that applies any form of judgment to somebody's performance or actions doesn't add any value to the learning. If we want to learn, we have to be curious, but we have to leave the judgment outside the room. So if we start labeling actions as unsafe or as in violation of XYZ, from a safety management perspective, that's not helping us. We have to neutralize the language. It's not about making the language positive and airy-fairy. It's about neutralizing the language. Let's describe performance 
in a language that's neutral. Because as soon as we start applying, he should have done this, she should have done that, they could have done this, then we're describing performance that never happened. And if we start saying things are unsafe, then all we're doing there is showing our outcome bias. Because we know what the outcome of that event was. We, the person involved in it, didn't know what the outcome was going to be. They were just doing the best they could at the time. Our job is to understand how they made the decisions that they did. By learning that, we can then say, well, actually, maybe by understanding why it made sense to that person to do that, we can maybe intervene at the system level and say, well, we want to try and change that across the whole across all of our pilots or across all of our workers so that when they're, when they're in this situation, their sense-making is this, not what this pilot had to do based on their own understanding of the situation. Mm. And, and I, would, I would be inclined to agree based on my experience, if I'm honest, when you're, when you're working on a, you know, whether you want to call it event investigation, a learning review, an incident investigation, whatever you want to call it, whenever you're following that process, I think most safety professionals, hopefully, or, or, or to use my kind of my analogy between in this debate would be good safety professionals um, would ideally be coming from that position of we want to learn how, you know, what went wrong, why it went wrong and how we can stop it going wrong again. You know, that's essentially what we're trying mm-hmm. to do. Yeah. Um, but, but when you're in a, a kind of a business or a culture of, of that kind of we're looking for accountability, you know, we want all the classic phrases. We want to drive accountability mm-hmm. down from the top and make sure that everyone's accountable for what they do is when your your investigation, like we say, or whatever, is, is driven by that finding accountability. I think it changes the answers you get from the people involved in that incident trying to who you're asking for evidence or context or whatever you want to call it is you're you're saying what happened you know what happened what were you thinking it it, it doesn't matter how well i suppose the language does matter but if you if you haven't got that initial aim of just learning if your aim is overall to um blame everything else you do is kind of rendered uh pointless because that person's going to have it in the back of their head well, I've got to be careful what I say because I could lose my job. Mm. Exactly. And, and, and that's, where, um, that's where organizational culture plays, plays a big part. Um, mm. I, I, I stopped short of talking about safety culture because I don't really believe that it's a helpful concept um, to kind of see the world through. But organizational culture, obviously, you, you can't deny the existence of that. Um, the culture in the organization, whether it's at the top level or within a particular operational department, is going to determine the success of, of these sorts of measures. And, and the, the luck that I had really in, in doing this at CAFE was that the person who was primarily uh, accountable for safety within this operational department was 100% behind this and was almost one of the most articulate um, and passionate speakers about needing to head in this direction. That made this whole lot easier because yeah, although there's still skeptics that, that would work under him, um, you know, the fact that, that at that leadership level, this person was talking about these things in a way that was genuine, not in a way that was kind of uh, going, oh, you know, this is, this is what I should be talking about. This person genuinely believed that this was the right direction to go. Uh, and, you know, when you have a leader like that, that that's that you know if, if you define leadership as you know the ability to generate followership 
you know, that person definitely was able to achieve this, um, achieve that with this particular change. Mm. Yeah, I can imagine that that makes it a lot, a lot, um, a lot simpler when you when you're trying to kind of bring about change like this. As I think that's everyone's challenge, really, isn't it? It's getting that senior leader, um, or that not even maybe a senior leader, but that one influential person that that kind of is is that first advocate, that first follower. Um, When when you're kind of, um, I imagine this whole thing was quite quite gradual, and I think you said in the beginning it was about uh two two years so correct me if i'm wrong um but like as you're going through this process how how did you how do you kind of measure your improvement there because i think th- some of the stuff i see from that safety one camp is is that they're kind of pl- and don't get me wrong i think both sides of the camps cherry pick cherry pick um bits of evidence that support their argument as everybody does um but i think they'll go to say I don't know, BP or they'll go to Shell or something like that. You know, one of these kind of organizations that has implemented a safety differently or safety two or hop or whatever the bloody hell we want to call it uh, system into their business. And and then they will probably come back and say, well, the incident rate actually initially dropped, but then has gone back up or it's plateaued. And actually you, you haven't stopped killing people or anything like the measurements like that obviously still continue, but how did you measure, measure the, the kind of, change positive and or negative from, from the implementation of this safety too i think in terms of um kind of hardcore implementation it's it's still early days i mean i, I left the organization um just over a month ago so okay um things have probably moved on a little bit since then but um have not you know it's, it's not been that long but in terms of measurement aviation is obsessed with measuring things so what you know what you'll typically find in an occupational health and safety world in terms of lagging indicators is is everything's around injuries right lost time injuries lost lost day rate yeah um, different ways of of normalizing that data but it's the first aid um uh, me- medical treatment these kinds of things right in aviation we also have all of these flight safety measures so we get all of these events in and we can categorize them in so many different ways apply different taxonomies to them so aviation is very, very good at collecting lagging indicator data. Um, not so good at collecting the leading indicator data. So I think what this safety two process enables us to do is to generate a leading indicator data set, but around this whole concept of resilience. Because like I said earlier, most safety events in, in the flight operations world could have been a lot worse had it not been for the resilience displayed by the crew. Now, our job is to understand that resilience and gather data on it, essentially. And there's different frameworks that I won't go into here that we can use to do that. Um, But in terms of measuring, it's about collecting data on why people are normally successful. So that data was beginning to be collected. But the important thing to note here is that it's not just about quantifying improvement. It's about using qualitative measurements of operational performance to to try and measure improvement as well we can't just rely on tabulating numbers and and counting things we have to think about how can we use qualitative data differently to give us a a, a richer understanding of how we might be um, improving our operation so that might be things like um, you could conduct some form of survey 
on the safety climate of the organization. And what I'd hope you'd find if you did, you know, if you did one at CAFE last year and you did one at CAFE in three years time, you would find a significant improvement because of the way that people were treated when they were exposed to the safety management system. So rather than coming into that system and you know, feeling like they're being judged and feeling like they're having to take some form of uh, retributive accountability for what, what, they've, what they've been involved in, they've been approached and said, and, and, and they've basically just been asked to, to teach the organization what they'd learned. And that that would represent some form of improvement in culture, improvement in morale, but it would need to be measured qualitatively as well as quantitatively. So it's not just about you know, collecting big data, you know, lots of, lots of quantitative values. It's about collecting that thick data as well. So the, the lived experiences of people in this, in this kind of new way of thinking, this new way of operating. And then you combine those two together to create a much richer measurement source. Mm. But you would still, because that, that, that is the argument I, I see come up quite a lot, is there's no quantitative data to, to support this safety two debate. So in essence, you, what I felt like you were saying, and, and please correct me if I've completely missed the point, um, but it, it's a, the, the quantitative stuff that we did from a safety one point of view, those kind of lagging incident reports and um, measurements mm. and stuff like that still remain. We're, you're, we're just now yeah. additionally having some more qualitative data to kind of create a more holistic view. Is that what, is that what you're saying? Yeah, yeah. So for instance, in the operational learning review, you're going to capture some data that's going to support your lagging indicators that already exist. But you're also mm -hmm. going to capture some data around resilient performance. So if we sort of take Holm, Eric Holmnagel's um, model of, of resilience, he talks about four potentials, the potential to anticipate, monitor, respond and learn. So what we'd be doing as part of that process is identifying where the crew were carrying out those potentials, put some more meat on the bones rather than just literally being a word. But then we can use that as a new data source and say, well, actually, in these events, yes, we didn't want them to happen, but actually it was the crew's resilience that enabled it to, to be managed. And we're essentially collecting data on that. What you can then do, hopefully, is show that as the amount of resilience in the organization increases by the measures that you're taking at the system level, you start to be able to correlate that with some form of reduction in the lagging indicators. Mm. Not all of the lagging indicators, because actually one of, the, one of the kind of views that we have in aviation safety is that events themselves represent markers of resilience. You know, so when we have a safety event, it doesn't necessarily mean it's a, a bad thing. Because most of the time that event hasn't become, it hasn't turned into an accident or a serious incident. So the event itself represents some form of resilience that's built into the system. The fact that we can lose a margin of safety, but we can recover from it and the passengers are none the wiser, that represents resilience in the system. We want to try and understand that. So, you know, these events aren't necessarily bad things. Mm. So it's essentially like from a say say if I'm like a CEO and I'm and I'm saying how how do I know we're not going to have a serious incident tomorrow, Adam? You would actually be able to turn around and say, well, look at all these incidents we've had, 
and we've not killed anyone. And what we've learned from all of these incidents are this is this. So we, we, we had a, to use your words, marker of resilience in this incident. And we've, we've then improved on that further by doing this from which we learned from this learning review. Is, is that yeah, exactly. So exactly. So if we're to visualize this and I know it's difficult to do that on a podcast, if you think yeah, about a normal, no a normal, <laughs> yeah. If you think about a normal distribution curve, um, and actually some of some of the um, some of the writing around safety two represents you know the scope of safety two using a nor- normal distribution or a Gaussian distribution curve. So in the middle you've got normal performance, you've got everyday normal performance. On the left you've got um, you know, failure of safety, so you've got accidents and incidents um, where people have you know inverted commas failed and, and errors have occurred and things like that. And on the right hand side, you've got really, really resilient safety performance. And in, in my world, that's things like, you know, the, the landing on the Hudson, um, mm-hmm. you know, where you know, an, an amazing outcome was achieved, you know, in the face of adversity. If we, if we can identify the resilient performance of every single, you know, event that we, we come across, what we're trying to do essentially is use that knowledge to skew that distribution to the right. So that less of the area under that curve is is in the left area, and more of it is in the right area. Mm-hmm. We cannot achieve that if we only if we only take measures or interventions that affect individuals. So you know that pilot made an error, and that pilot's going to get demoted. That isn't going to achieve anything to try and enhance the resilience of the system. What we need to do is say, well, let's learn at the system level let's improve our training system uh, you know let's make interventions at that level by doing that we can improve the system as a whole and we can move everybody to the right not just intervening on the individual level to move that one individual to the right if that makes sense it's yeah. probably much easier to describe using a diagram but... <laughs> yeah yeah it's not podcast friendly <laughs> no no, I, I think that's, um, like I say, I, I kind of like the way you, you describe things. I think it makes it simple, which is which is what laymen's like me uh, need. And it's interesting that <laughs> we need that kind of, um, we, need, we need these kind of explanations, I find. In, um, and that's, that's kind of why I've mentioned Sam a couple of times as well. I, I like, sorry, my dog's shaking, uh, if you heard that. Um, <laughs> but it's, um, yeah, I like, I think we need more people like yourself. Uh, like, like I think Ron kind of articulates things very clearly, in my opinion, sometimes as well, and um, and and Sam yeah. does as well. Is sometimes this can be a very academic space, and for someone like me, I'm not academic whatsoever, so I really struggle sometimes, like reading some of this stuff and academic papers, and I'm just like Jesus. And that's why, personally, for me, this podcast is just a selfish learning exercise because I learn through conversation. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, no, it does yeah. make sense, and I really like that. Ha- okay, you've um, you've you've mentioned in the, in your your kind of emails to me, you wanted to uh, you wanted to plug a couple of uh, websites uh, and a, and a podcast as well. I suppose I'll, I'll let you plug another podcast on on my podcast as much as it pains me to say. <laughs> I'm joking. Um, so yeah, do you want to go ahead and just kind of um, mention those 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 things that I assume they've they've helped you grow? Is that is that one of the main reasons why? Yeah, um, uh, yeah, and actually, so I, I mentioned to you before we started recording that one of the main ways that I learn is writing. So writing mm-hmm. what 
I think I know helps me to kind of formulate my thoughts. And I think that's the same for a lot of people. The other thing is exactly as you described, which is talking to other people. So I guess, you know, and, it, and it's typically a trait of an extroverted person is that you learn and you gain new wisdom by talking with people and just sort of having kind of stream of consciousness conversations, uh, which sort of lead you to new new thinking. So the same is for me. So I just wanted to let people know that um, if they're interested in learning a bit more about, about what I was doing at Cafe, but uh, in another conversation I had, um, there is a... Uh, a kind of a podcast of sorts that I recorded with the Resilience Engineering Association. So if you go onto their website, um, you should be able to find through through their newsletter, I think it was in January or February, a link to me talking about, about this with them. Mm-hmm. Um, also recently uh, spoke to Todd Conklin, many people will know Todd, um, about uh, sort of resilience in relation to COVID. And I also wrote an article which is on the Safety Differently website, uh, which talks about the difference between complicated and complex systems and why it's important for us to to understand that in safety management. So they're sort of three areas that if you want to sort of learn a little bit more about about me, if you so wish, um, then, <laughs> then you can go to those those um, those places for that. No, I like that. And I've listened to your, um, I've listened to your conversation with Todd. I, I really enjoyed it actually. It was, uh, I like, I like what Todd does as well. I think, um, I think Todd's yeah. very good at articulating the stuff and, um, I, I'm a, I'm much more of a long form, uh, advocate. So I, I sometimes I wish his podcasts were a bit longer than what they are. Um, I, I like a podcast <laughs> to keep me entertained through the yeah. whole dog walk, which is at least an hour. So, uh, yeah. 30 minutes is just not enough for me, Todd. But no, I did listen to your, um, your conversation <laughs> with Todd and it, it was really good, yeah. mate. So well done. It was a nice, nice, um, nice conversation and it helped me, definitely helped me. Hmm. Yeah, well, the, the interesting thing about that conversation is it was totally emergent. There was, there was absolutely no plan to talk about what we ended up talking about. It was, uh, it was totally random, really. Um, and hopefully, hopefully people get some value out of it. Yeah, some of some of my favourite. I love I love when uh, yeah, like that's what. So when we we kind of chatted before and and we kind of put together some key points that that we were going to cover in your story and um, but I love to try and keep it as 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 emergent as as possible and try to keep these podcasts as as yeah. least scripted as possible. Some of the best we've had um, are are ones that either we've done a content guide and and we didn't even talk about we ended up talking about something else or ones that we just said, oh, screw it let's not <laughs> yeah. do it and let's just uh let's just have a chat i think you're right they're such good conversations mm-hmm. i think todd's really good at that as well i think mm-hmm. because of todd where todd is in his uh industry and his intellect i suppose he he's very good at just having it he can have it i see feel like he can have a conversation about anything and he would probably know a good yeah. chunk about it yeah i agree adam thank you very much it's um i would i would uh talk to you forever but unfortunately i've got another call to jump on to so uh, <laughs> that's a shame but thank you very very much for coming on the podcast mate thank you for having me okay beeps hope you enjoyed that conversation i love talking to adam i think adam is a great bloke um i've been winding him up a bit lately on uh, on linkedin because uh, he's doing some web we're both doing this series of webinars with paradigm uh, performance if you if you don't know about them go check them out follow Teresa swindon follow paradigm uh, hop you google paradigm hop i think and then it will come up that's the easiest way i find them um 
<clears throat> and they're doing some great webinars. Um, and I'm on their series of webinar in December time. So uh, when this comes out, it'd be like, I think probably beat December time actually when this comes out. So go check them out. They're really, really good. Adam's just done his. So if you go to their website, I think you can download this, the, the, the webinar that Adam did. It's very, very good. Um, and I just think Adam is a very reasonable gentleman. He's very good at just talking about how we actually do this, um, you know, and how he did it, the differences he saw them and, and physically what it was like and the challenges he had. And that webinar was really good. So you can go check that out. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. hope you found it useful. Don't forget to check out next week my reflection on my chat with Adam, which I'm kind of in awe of the bloke. I really like him. So probably just be me fanboying for about 30 minutes. But that aside, um, you know, go listen to it anyway. Get some, get yourself some behind the scenes. That is a podcast exclusive episode. Don't forget. So if you're watching us on YouTube right now, sorry, you can't get the reflections without coming on over to Spotify or iTunes or Stitcher or any number of these podcasts platforms out there um so make sure you go do that if you enjoyed this episode you listen to itunes give us a rate and review otherwise just share it with someone do something positive that really helps us out with all those magical algorithm things come and chat with me on social media me james mcpherson on linkedin facebook rebranding safety twitter because it's special rebranded safety instagram probably don't bother yet because we're not very good at it and what else is there that's it we don't have a myspace oh, i miss myspace myspace was good anyway i'll catch you next week peeps safe the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the host and its guests and do not necessarily reflect the position of the companies. Examples of analysis discussed within this podcast are examples only based on limited and dated open source information and should not be utilised in real life as the only solution available. Assumptions made within this analysis are not reflective of the position of the companies. No part of this podcast may be reproduced, stored or transmitted in any form or by any means, mechanical, electronic or otherwise, without prior written permission from James McPherson.